prayer later. I'll mention this maybe afterwards too. We're going to pray um, before we conclude uh, for the Haiti team. There's a couple things. One, Jen is working this morning. That's why she's not here. So we have a team of two and only one of them is here. <laughs> um, and uh, But we're, we're going there uh, for two reasons, really. One, one primary purpose that we're going is to... Uh, is to kind of, as you know, I've been doing a lot of training with the pastors in the community. And we've been training them in how to uh, kind of share the, the Bible and the gospel as, as a story or as a series of stories and how to lead discussions or dialogues around that content to help people kind of think through and discover the truth of God for themselves as they do that in a community. And it's kind of a new way of discipleship that we've, we've have discovered is really effective in contexts where people are highly illiterate. And, um, and so we've been training the pastors in this methodology for the last several years. Um, but what we're going to do this time is to take that same method that a lot of their people have experienced and maybe they've kind of gotten bits and pieces of it. And we're going to essentially train everyday folks to do the same thing. So we're kind of taking that, that training to the next level down, so to speak, to just people as they lead groups in their homes, as they lead their families. And so we're going to be training women, we're going to be training students, we're going to be training all kinds of different people in the same thing that the pastors have gotten. So I'm really excited for that. Um, So you can pray for that. Um, But one thing has to happen before that happens, which is we actually need to get there. And there's a bit of a question about that. So if you've paid attention to the news, or if you saw our city post about that, there's been a lot of unrest. And the U.S. Embassy right now has a do not travel status warning uh, for Americans. They're, they're just advising that they don't come into the country because of the unrest. So um, some of that has to do with safety. Some of that has to do with access to resources at hotels, at the airport, and so does all those kinds of things. So um, what we need to pray for is, is access, essentially, um, so 410 Bridge is getting together, their, their staff team is gathering tomorrow, and they're getting reports in from their Haitian staff leaders and the people that are on the ground there, and they're going to make an assessment and determination whether or not we can actually have the trip. So I won't know until tomorrow if we're leaving on Wednesday. Uh, so we, we need to pray for that. So that'll be coming up a little bit later. Um, in the meantime, if you, you've been around here for any uh, period of time, you know that we're going through the book of Ephesians, and it's a bit of a, a rediscovery process for us. We're seven years in as a church, and we're asking the question again, what does it mean to be the church? And the book of Ephesians is Paul's kind of magnum opus to that question. It's his masterpiece or his masterclass about what it means to be the church. And um, and what we've been discovering and finding out is that to be the church means that there are two things happening simultaneously. There there is the beauty of what God is doing in in the midst of our lives and in our community and and even around us in our neighborhoods and workplaces. But all of that is happening in the midst of mess. That that and God is okay with both of those things happening concurrently that our lives are messy, that he saves us out of the mess of our lives, and that he continuously makes us more beautiful. And, and what he wants to do through the church is to make the world more beautiful, is to make the world, um, as Jesus prayed, uh, that heaven would come to earth, 
that, that the influence of who God is would, would work through His people and that through His people, us, that we are the place that God dwells and He resides in South Jersey, that the, South Jersey would become and begin to look more like heaven. Um, now, another way to say beauty, if we're going to become beautiful, is change. That we are to be people who experience change. In fact, to be the church means that we would individually and collectively see deep change in our lives. In, in fact, I was, I was reading through the whole book again and I was looking at other writings of Paul. And I know many of you have too because we've been going through the Bible together. One of the things that strikes me so odd is the fact that when Paul is writing these letters to various churches, and especially to Ephesians, he never seems to focus on whether or not they're growing numerically. Do you wonder? I mean, doesn't that strike you as odd? He's not like, hey, make sure you get out there and share your faith, or bring people to the Sunday gathering, or he, he never seems to be concerned with that. But he has a ton to say about whether or not the church is growing spiritually. Whether or not they're looking more and more like Jesus. And it's not that Paul is unconcerned with people coming to faith in Jesus. He's, he's very concerned with that. In fact, he, he's giving his whole life over to that. But I think he understands that the only way that the world is going to come to know Jesus, the only way that they're going to grapple with the truth of the gospel is if they see Jesus. If the world doesn't see him, they won't believe him. How are they going to see him? And the answer is they have to see him in us. They have to see him in us. That's the only way they're going to come to know is when they see him embodied in a community. There needs to be a community that is a living, breathing manifestation of Jesus' presence on earth. And that's what Paul means when he says we are his body. In order to be his body, we need to change. Now, let me ask you that. How many of you have at least one area of your life that you would say you would love to see deep, lasting change in? Where you're like, yeah, there's at least one. Some of you are like, how many fingers do I have? Okay, at least ten areas of change. Wouldn't you love to have the knowledge and the power to be able to see deep, lasting change in that area? Paul is going to answer the question for us, essentially, what does it mean to change? And how does that process happen? So I want to, actually, I want you to keep that area in mind as we start to look at this together. What is that area for you? Just keep it in the back of your mind. And let's see what he has to say. We're in Ephesians 4. And by the way, we're, I'm kind of combining two weeks into one. Last week, if you were here, Aaron kind of shared his own personal testimony and what God's doing in his heart. We would have done the first half of this last week and the second half this week, and we're kind of mashing them both together. So it means we're not going to get to everything today. Uh, but we have a plan for that. So we're going to be starting in verse 17. We're going to go through the end of the chapter in verse 31. Um, and we'll have it up here. 
Paul says this, So I tell you this, and I insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in Him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are so angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption." Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Now, there's a lot going on here, and that's why I said we're not going to get to it all. Um, But hopefully what I want to do today is have us maybe play with some tools that we can start to employ in our communities and throughout our week. And these tools are critical that we understand them. This this section, I think, is probably the most important, the most comprehensive section of the Bible on what it means to change and how to change. It is that critical. If you don't understand what's going on in Ephesians 4 here, chances are you will lack the resources to see deep transformational change in your heart. That's how important it is. I know I say that, like, it seems like I say that every week about how important this section is. But that's why this is Paul's magnum opus to what it means to be the church. Every section is like, we need to hang on what Paul is saying and build our lives around what he's trying to communicate. It's that critical. So, so here's what I want to do in Ephesians 4. I, w- I want to look at it through the lens of four questions. One, what is the problem? What's our greatest obstacle to change? Two, what's the solution? How do we actually change? Three, how do we access that solution? And four, who has access to that solution? Who can actually change? So, Number one, what's the problem? How many of you would agree that change is really difficult? Ch- change is difficult. How many of you ever tried to change and then you didn't experience change and you thought, man, like that was really hard and I want to give it another shot, but I'm not sure if I <laughs> have the willpower to do it. 
I, mean, I, I, I know that that's been the case for me, and I remember, I mean, I, I, you know, things in my own life that have existed for what seemed like decades, it's hard. Why is it so hard? What's the problem? What's the obstacle? And that, that's what Paul is saying is, is in place in verses 17 and 19. If you remember, he says, I insist on the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, In what? The futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding. They're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They're full of greed. What's the problem? What are some of the words that Paul uses? What's that? Yeah, their hearts are hardened. They're they're insensitive to to God's promptings. What else? They're darkened in their understanding. They don't know how to change because the, the light isn't on, so to speak. They can't find the exit in what they're struggling with because they have no light to see from. What else? What did you hear? Yeah, there's ignorance, right? Which is just a lack of... I mean, we think of that as a very... Like, to call somebody ignorant is like one of the worst things you think of to to call someone. But it just means they lack the understanding to do so. Right? Yeah, yeah. They don't know any better. Now, here's the thing. What don't they know any better about? What is it that they're lacking? The, the common thread, if you look at it all together, is that he, Paul is talking about people that are separated from God. They don't have the life of God, and because they're separated from Him, what's true about them? They don't know what God is really like. They have a skewed picture of who he is and what he's like. Here's the other way to say it. They believe lies rather than the truth. They they believe untruths about who God is rather than the truth about who he is. See, this is the issue, and this is why we we don't often change, is because the problem in our hearts is much deeper than we actually like to admit. Because... Well, yeah, Satan is certainly involved in in perpetuating those lies. We'll get to that in a minute. But when most of us think about the problems that we have in our life, the sin issues, the things that we like to see transformation about, most of us, if we're being honest, would say we need to see improvement in those areas. We need to see, like, a little bit of change, right? Right? Improvement. And Paul's saying, no, no, no. You don't need improvement. You need replacement. You don't, you don't just need uh, new tools or methods or new behaviors. You need a new life. You need a new heart. You need a new sensitivity to God. You can't, the other way to say it is, you can't just change your behavior only. 
Because, here's the, the underlying problem that he's trying to get at. The underlying problem of every human heart, your heart, my heart, everyone's heart, believers in Jesus, not yet believers in Jesus, all of us, is that we think and believe lies about God. We think we have a picture of what he's like, and we think we have a picture of our own lives and our own identities but those pictures that we have are skewed at best. They're based on falsehood rather than the truth about who God is and what he's done and what he's like. Yeah, so sometimes we can tell ourselves th- those things, but here, here's the issue. Even for, because we could say, oh, well, I mean, he's ta- obviously he's talking about people that don't believe in Jesus, right? But it's not just a problem for non-Christians. Because he, he, he tells them, no, I, I, I insist on this, that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. Who's he talking to? Gentiles. <laughs> he's talking to an ethnic group of people and he's saying, I don't want you to live like this anymore even though this is who you are. Which means that they're still susceptible to believing falsehoods about who God is, even though they know the truth. And family, that is just as true for this community as it was for that community. We know all kinds of things in our minds about God. The issue is whether that knowledge is dropping from our minds into our hearts and activating our belief system in the way that we live. If it's not then it doesn't matter what we claim to believe about God, the operating system of our lives is actually working on a different program. We're believing tr- lies about God rather than the truth. Now, so let's, let's talk about that for a second. What are some of the lies about God? I'm going to ask you to get kind of personal. Like we're a little small, a little light this morning, so not as many of us around to you know, reveal these things to, you You can trust us. What are some of the lies that you tend to believe about what God's like? What are some of the falsehoods, the untruths you think that tend to go on in your heart? What's that? Okay. Yeah, that you're unforgivable. That there's either something you've done or something you've thought or an emotion that you've had uh, that is outside the boundaries of God's grace. It's not true. But how how, how many... I mean, Casey just shared that. That's true in his heart. How many of you would say you've struggled with that exact same thing? Yeah, me too. And it keeps us from experiencing God's grace, right? In our moments of greatest need. Yeah. Yeah. That he's disappointed. He's he's like a a real harsh dad who is waiting for us just to get our act together in order to love us. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so... Rather than being surprised of our sin, realizing that God 
foreknew our sin before we knew Him. He knew what it was going to cost to cover that sin before we ever came to acknowledge His forgiveness, right? What are some other untruths, yeah? That your suffering was his plan. Yeah. Yeah. Somehow that God, um, I don't know, I mean, well, how would you phrase that? That he delights in your suffering or that he he's okay with? Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe another way to say that would be that not only did God, does God plan our suffering, but he's removed from it. He's cold when we go through it. He's kind of like, he sort of set it in motion and is kind of standing back from it and going, gosh, I hope you know how to deal with this. When that, and I mean, we know that's not the, the truth. Jesus entered into our suffering as a picture of what God does. Not just 2,000 years ago, but every single suffering. Yeah. So here's where we're going to go, just so you know. Like, we're going to talk about the truth of God in Jesus and how it counters those things. So as you're thinking about those lies, keep that in your mind because I want you to also give the alternative to that once we get to that point. So I saw a hand over here. and Go ahead, James, and then Dave. Yeah. Yeah, there's something different or unique about me. That's why he chose me, right? Is because I was more lovable than those other people. I'm at the, you know, when you talk about the root of all hatred in the world, the root of all division is exactly that. Is it, it's, a, it's thinking that God loves those who are most lovable. And if I can include myself in that community, either by my own good effort or good works or, or whatever, then I feel superior to those people that haven't achieved what I've achieved. That's a complete disregard of, act, of what God is like. David and then Bob, yeah. Yeah, one of the things that I've struggled with in my personal life is looking back on yeah. the I've always bothered Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, uh, I mean, and we've all heard that maybe, like that delayed obedience is disobedience. Um, and there, there's something that's, you know, truthful about that in sort of a motivating way at the beginning, but then realizing that, God, like, God's love for you isn't dependent on your obedience. And it's not like he, he you know, man, if you, like, if you'd come to faith when you were, you know, 10, it would have been a whole lot better than when you were 40. Gosh, you know, like... No, he doesn't work that way. There is no t- time in God's economy. Like he, he loves us and accepts us at the moment of repentance and faith. Whenever that happens, right? Yeah. What were you gonna say, Bob? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I think where the lie comes in, though, is is believing that that our relationship with God is dependent on how much we get it right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I think about some of the lies that I tend to believe about God. I, 
I, you know, I, I tend to believe that God loves me more when I'm good as opposed to when I'm in sin, that he isn't gracious and loving and, and present with me in the midst of those struggles. I tend to believe that real meaning and joy comes through my achievements rather than him, that he's not good. What were you going to say, Kurt? Right. Yeah, we'll get to what is the true comparison in a second. But, yeah, I mean, it, that's at the heart of the issue, right, is, is, is not seeing God through the lens of who he is and how he's revealed himself, but through the lens of our own experience and what we know. And all of us do this, not just with God, but with each other, right? Because when you have a conflict with somebody else, what do you immediately do? You start to suspicion, like have suspicion over their motives because you immediately think, well, I wouldn't have done that, you know? Or here's the way that I think, and, th- and then you, you interpret someone else's actions and someone else's life through the lens of what you would have done or, or how you've done it before, and then you start to make determinations about that other person based on your own experience. All of it, here's the truth, all of us do that to God too. Because when, when he brings something into our lives that, and we go, well, I wouldn't have done it that way. What are we doing? We're making God in our own image rather than us being made in his. We're, we're, we're believing the truth, uh, a lie about God that he is like us. When actually what the Bible says is he is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You know what that means? He's different, different, different than all of us and his ways are higher than our ways and we will not understand them. So just because you can't fathom a reason he might do something doesn't mean that he, ha- he doesn't have a reason. It just means that, that he understands the big picture far better than you do. But we believe the lies. We, we are ignorant of the truth. We're darkened in our understanding. And it's futile, right? When you come to a certain determination that you know isn't true about God, it leads to this circular pattern of thinking, and that pattern of thinking works it out in a circular way of living. And that's so often the reason why we can't gain headway in the areas that we'd love to see transformation is because we're doing the same things and thinking the same things. And when we believe lies about God and lies about who we are, then those lies end up hardening our hearts and we become enslaved to those lies. If you think that God is cold and distant from you, then that lie will lead you into patterns of living whereby you are looking for warmth and intimacy from something, someone. You know, this is oftentimes what's at the heart of people that are struggling with pornography. Did you know that? has nothing to do with sexual urges. It has everything to do with the seeking out of intimacy. And they think that when, when they're giving themselves over to this sensuality, they're looking for the truth of who they are. They're looking for what they're made to experience, which is intimacy and love and acceptance and, 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 and satisfaction and all of those things. But they point all those desires at something that can't fulfill it. It's a lie. 
And oftentimes, when, when we're stuck in those patterns, we'll think to ourselves, well, God is so disappointed in me that I've succumbed to that lie. Do you know what you just did? You perpetuated it. Rather than seeing that the truth of God is that he wants to meet you in your deepest moment of intimacy, you've exchanged that truth for a lie, and that lie keeps you enslaved to the activity that you so desperately want to get free of. I love the way that Tim Chester puts it. He says, behind every sin is a lie about God. Behind every sin is a lie about God. That means that every area of my life and every area of your life that does not look and sound and smell like Jesus in every way means that is an area where we are succumbing to a lie about what he's like. I think of the, I don't know if your struggle is with jealousy. When you look at the lives of other people around you and like, man, I wish I had what they had or I wish I you know, didn't have what I have. I wish I had a better lot in life or a better status in life or a better job in life. I I see other people and what they have and man, I want to be like them. We're failing to believe something about God in that moment. We're, We're failing to believe that He's generous. We're failing to believe that He loves us, not on the basis of who we are, but on the basis of who He is. We we're failing in thinking that God is somehow angry with you or disappointed with you, and He's not. So that's why you can't expect to change just by telling yourself you shouldn't. And that's so often our strategy. I shouldn't be jealous. I shouldn't be lustful. I shouldn't steal. I shouldn't be angry. Whatever it happens to be, it doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is because the root of all of those things runs much deeper than your actions and your thoughts. It has everything to do with what you believe. Your beliefs are driving that emotion. So unless you identify the lie and replace it with the truth, you and I will not experience lasting change. Now, what is the truth? What's the solution? And, and that's what Paul gets to in verse 20 to 24. He says, however... This is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And you were taught in Him according to the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now what is he saying? What's the solution? If, if unbelief and lies and untruths are the problem, what's the, what's the solution? What's that? It's to believe the truth that's in Jesus. See, here's the thing. Jesus is the truth of what God is like. We're told that he is the exact representation of God's being in nature. If you want to be able to distinguish the genuine thing from the imitation, you look at Jesus. And when you do, you'll know the truth. What does Jesus say? If you want to be my disciples, you follow me, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will do what? It'll set you free. Why don't we believe that? We don't. We think... If I just change my actions, then I'll be set free. 
If I just change my circumstances, then I'll be set free. If I change my my address, then I'll be set free. If I change my circle of friends, then I'll be set free. If I change my job, then I'll be set free. Lies, lies, lies. They're all lies. Jesus said, if you want to be set free, you need to know the truth. If you want to know the truth, you have to come to me. That's the only way it's going to happen. So, so what's the truth about what God is like in Jesus? Just breathe. What do we see about what God is like when we look at the face of Jesus, when we look at the work of Jesus? Hmm? Compassion. I mean, he comes into Jerusalem and he sees not a, a city in rebellion against him. I mean, imagine the creator of the universe walks through the gates of the city. He looks around at the people that should welcome him and worship him and enthrone him on high, and yet he realizes that a week later they're going to kill him. And what does Jesus do? Does he look down his nose at them? Does he stay outside the gates and go, man, I, I can't go in until they get their act together? He says, they know not what they do. They're like sheep without a shepherd. I'm going to come and be the shepherd that lays down his life for these sheep that don't know me. That's what he does for you. Well, that's what Jesus does when he comes in your heart. Is that you You turn from co- condemning others who who don't treat you the way that you feel like you need to, to be treated or deserve to be treated. And you start treating them compassion with compassion regardless of what they give to you in response. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's two sides of that. So one side is that you can't change anyone. Only God changes people. That's what we're talking about here. But but there is a second side, which is the heart of compassion, which says, I, I desperately want to see people change and grow and understand what God is like and be free. And I think that is him in us, that desire not to want to let go. Yeah. My experience so often is that God uses people, that his way is through people. Sometimes it is true. You can't save people, and and sometimes people have destructive patterns, and, and you just realize there is nothing that I can do, and so the best thing is to to, to pray. Yeah, but... There again, I mean, we're talking, individual circumstances may call for different things. So let's talk about that more afterwards, okay? What, what else do we see in Jesus? See compassion. Yeah. Yeah, right? I mean, huge patience for the disciples who never seem to get it. I mean, on the last day... Of their graduate studies with Jesus, Peter denies his teacher three times. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, he. <laughs> Jesus returns to them. What is their main question? 
okay, now do we get to be princes in a new kingdom? Like, (laughs) now that you're like risen from the dead, are you going to return the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? Do we get to be your vice regents? Like, do we get to have power now? And Jesus goes, that's not for you to know. He still has to correct them post-resurrection, you know? And then he says to those same people that are ignorant in their thinking, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You're my plan A. (laughs) If that doesn't give you hope for God's activity in your heart and in your neighborhood, when you look around at the people that God has placed around your life and you hear something like he has put you in that community of people or those relationships to be his representatives and his witnesses, the first thing that should come to your mind is I'm not worthy of this. And God will say yes and amen. (laughs) The only reason, the only power that you have in that community of people is the fact that I'm in you. That's it. That's the only hope the disciples had. That's the only hope we have. What else do we see in Jesus? Yeah. So, right, so, so a realization that he actually is in control. That he is working out his will and his plan. That we can rest in him. We can submit to him. We don't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to have the game plan, even for our own change. We, um, you think of the area that you most like to change in. You don't have to have like the best strategy to attack that change. You just have to have the best one in you that can do it and submit to him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, that's why we always say that the, the issue is at the area of belief. Because belief triggers action. If you want to know what you believe, look at what you do and what you think. Um, because that's really what's driving the the train of your life, yeah. And so, yeah, realizing that we're not the center of our own existence, that our lives, if we're in Christ, are actually about Him and what He's doing. He is the central character. We are the 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 what's that called? The supporting cast. Yeah, I'm not even sure we're that. <laughs> Yeah, right. We're the extras. Um. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah. And, and and so much of our life with Christ is actually about God putting us in situations that unearth the deep beliefs of our heart. When you think of like, why in the world would God allow something like this? He's He's digging up the boulders, as it were where you would say beforehand, that boulder doesn't that boulder of unbelief doesn't exist in my field. And then God goes, Well let me bring famine. You go through a season of famine and the, the topsoil gets ripped away and you go, Holy cow, where did that boulder come from? It was there the whole time. But God in his graciousness and in his love for you decided to use a circumstance to reveal that it was there so that you could put on the new self and rip that thing out by his power. Right? That comes back to what we believe about God. Like, they're connected. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. I, I think something that's so helpful for me when I think about this and 
And the solution is, did you catch when it said to put on the new self, what the new self was like? Paul actually said the new self is created to be like God in righteousness and holiness. Did you know that? When he saved you, he gave you a new identity. And that new identity is created to be like Jesus. It's, pro- it's pre-programmed. When you come to Christ, you, the, the new nature that he puts in you by the power of his spirit is pre-programmed to make you point in the direction of Jesus. So that as you grow in him, you would look more and more like him. So often when I think of my own change, I think, man, like the cards are stacked against me. Right? Like I've got my own nature that wants to resist God. I've got the, the, the devil who, who wants to heap himself on top of those lies. I've got the world around me that's perpetuating that lie. It just seems like everything is stacked against me. And then in the midst of that, Paul goes, no, like... I've put my spirit in you and that spirit wants what I want. You're you're slaves to righteousness, he says somewhere else. You're going to go in that direction if you're in me. That's such good news to me. Because I want a sense that there is hope for change, right? And you do too. So, So how do we access that solution? How do you actually... Become kind of a person who who understands what it means to throw off the old self and put on the new. He gives a, a actually a whole bunch of case studies about how to do that, and that's what verses 25 to 32 are all about. Because he, he talks about lying and he talks about anger and bitterness and slander and unforgiveness and stealing. And here's what Paul is doing. Paul is giving us specific examples of what it looks like to put off the old self and to put on the new. And he's giving the Ephesians and he's giving us kind of an invitation to have our minds renewed around those various areas. Now, here's the unfortunate thing. We can't get to all of them. (laughs) Wouldn't you love to just, like, let's pause and take the next several weeks and let's just get to each single one of those. I wish we could do that. Um, Maybe you could do that in in your community groups. Is there one, though, I had a plan, I'm going to put that on the shelf for a second. Is there one that you go, yeah, I'd love to, let's dig into that for five minutes. I'm going to take the first suggestion, so just be bold and go, yeah, I want to do this one. Lying, angerness, angerness, anger, (laughs) bitterness, uh, slander, unforgiveness, stealing. (laughs) <laughs> bitterness. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, uh, that has a lot to do with anger, too. All right, so let's do that. Um, I was thinking about anger and bitterness, and Pam and I did not talk about this ahead of time. Um, but it, it's Paul says, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, and don't give the devil a foothold. What are... What are when you're bitter, when you're really angry and frustrated, what do you think some of the untruths about God are maybe in play when you're experiencing the, that emotion? Yeah, so anger around circumstances. You wanted something, he withheld it, 
And so now you're angry about that. What other things? Untruths about God. Yeah. Yeah, so he's not really good. (laughs) Right, yeah. All right, we'll get to the truth in a second. What are some some of the other untruths, the lies that we might believe? Yeah. Yeah, because they've done this, they're less of a person than I am. Which I mean kind of goes back to like which means God should accept me over them because of what I've done good and they haven't. So we believe that God grades on a scale. Our desires are more important than theirs. Yeah, our agenda is more important, which kind of goes back to the fact that we're really the center of the universe. You know, and if, if our will gets thwarted, then obviously the world can't be a good place, which means God can't be a good God because he didn't give me what I wanted. I mean, when you say that out loud, doesn't it sound like a lie? <laughs> but we're believing it, right? It's, that boulder's under the surface. Here's the thing. Until you dig it out, you don't realize how big it is and how ugly it is and how much it's harming you. What are you going to say, James? Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, it says, in your anger, do not sin. Literally, it says, be angry, but don't sin. There, there are things to be angry about. There are injustices in the world. In fact, that if you're not angry about them, you are sinning. I mean, if your blood doesn't boil when you think of small children being separated from their parents, regardless of what they've done to put themselves into that situation, if that does not make your skin crawl and your blood boil, you're sinning, family. We can have discussions about what it means to bring solutions to that kind of a problem, but if the thought of having those thi- having children, that is injustice. If we don't find ourselves like going, this cannot stand... We don't have the heart of God in that matter. I'm sorry. There are times when we should be angry. But here's the thing about anger. So often, what are we doing when we get angry? See, good anger, godly anger, defends things that are good and attacks things that are bad. When you have good anger, what, around like a situation, you attack the system that allows for the injustice and you try to defend those that are defenseless. That's good anger. What's bad anger? Who are we defending when we're angry in a sinful way? Me. My agenda, my preferences, my wants, my desires. Isn't that mostly why you get angry and bitter at people? Is because you're defending yourself and you're attacking them? There are times and ways to get angry, but so much of our anger is based out of unbelief. So, what's the truth? 
What's the truth about God that might set us free from that sinful anger? Before we go there, let me say this. So, if you're a Christian in the room, anger is bad, right? And no one likes to admit to the fact that they're angry. In fact, we will do everything to, to, to use other language to talk about the fact that we're angry. You know, like, I'm not angry, I'm, I'm depressed. No, you're, you're angry and you're bitter. Like, it, we, we try to cover over it because <clears throat> in the Christian world, anger has been really, really bad um, because we haven't read this verse right. So here's what we often do. This is typically our strategy. When we're angry about something, what do we tend to do about it? What's that? Bury it. We stuff it down. We, we pretend that it's not there. Here's the thing about anger, though. Anger is, is a release of energy that attacks something bad and protects something good. So if you don't, re- if you don't discover the, the reasons why it's there, if you don't release it in the right way, what will happen? Who will it attack? You. It will do battle with you, if you, which is exactly what he's talking about. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. That's what he means. Don't stuff it. Don't bury it. Because it will attack something, and that thing it attacks will be you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so they get it, they get angry about the circumstances of the game, which are largely outside of their control. They get angry at the referees and their calls. And do you ever watch a? Who does he take it out on? Sometimes the referee, but mo- oftentimes he takes it out on his players. I often wonder after the game is over, when the coach goes home, if he's still taking out his anger on somebody. If his wife and his children aren't actually bearing the brunt of the anger that's based out of unbelief. Because anger has to attack something. And if it doesn't attack the thing that's evil, it will attack those that aren't. When I, when I think about anger in my own heart that's triggered by unbelief, if I don't figure out the root of that anger and I don't release it in the right way, then Mandy gets it and my kids get it and they don't deserve it. It will, it, it, it will burst out of its cage at some point, just a matter of how it does it. So we have to diffuse it and we have to understand what the, the truth of God has to say about that. I, I wish we could keep going because it's like, I mean, we, we could keep going on this for, for a long time. Maybe this is a good topic of discussion for the, for the groups. I wish we could tie up every loose end. But you have to see, like, there is the, the truth about God in the midst of our anger that will help us to release it in the right way, to understand that 
God maybe have even given us anger for the right reasons, if we can understand the ways to, to use it. But there, there are truths about your identity and there are truths about God that will help you funnel that into constructive things, into things that build you up and, and others up around you, rather than giving the devil a foothold. See, a couple caveat or a couple things I just want to address before we get to the end here. Some of you are thinking this seems too simplistic. You know that like there's got to be steps here. There's got to be something else, and the truth is there isn't. But what there is is a lifelong process that's spirit empowered. And so some of these things actually will take years, if not decades, for God to root out in us. And so this isn't like a quick fix solution to all the problems in our hearts. God is at work in the long game, not just the short term. There may be times when we see vast transformation, but a lot of these issues, he's, he's committed to the long term in our hearts. There's the flip side, though, where a lot of you are going, this is too hard of a process. I can't, I'm not smart enough or I don't know the gospel well enough to, to be able to do this kind of heart work on a regular basis. And, and here's what I would say to that. You're right. <laughs> You're not smart enough. You're not good enough. Doggone it. People do like you, but... Um, we need one another to do this. It, this, this is a community-saturated process. Paul is clear that we have to be in a community with other people in order to be able to put on the new self. That, that's the whole reason, by the way, he says in verses 25 and 29, Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. What is he talking about? We must all help each other to put off the falsehood of the lies that we believe about God and ourselves and to speak the truth in love, to speak the truth that is in Jesus, our new identity, the new self, and in other words, to help each other put on that new self. Why? Because we're members of one body. Verse 29, he says, don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what's what? Helpful for building others up according to their needs. So when you see a brother and sister in Christ who's struggling with anger, struggling with jealousy, struggling with lying, struggling with lust, that you would, by the power of the Holy Spirit, come into that person and be able to speak what's helpful to build that person up according to their need at the moment when they need it so that it would benefit them. Family, what that means is that we all have a job to do in this community. We, we are being called to speak truthfully, to help people identify, help our brothers and sisters identify the areas where we're falling into false beliefs and then speak the truth in love according to the ways that are going to build them up in Christ. And it's kind of like this. It's sort of like holding a mirror up to each other. All of us have a true identity. And it's like 
if I, if I think that I'm paralyzed and I live my life in a wheelchair, I'm, I, I just feel that I'm a paraplegic. Well, I go to the mirror and I look in the mirror and I realize, wow, I have two working legs, right? And, and then I, but here's the thing that happens to us. Oftentimes we walk away from the mirror. We walk away from the scriptures. We walk away from our time with God. We walk away from prayer. And what do we do? We immediately forget. And we start to believe, again, the lies about what we're like. We start to live like a paraplegic, even though we're fully functioning. Here's what we do as a community. The community helps bring the mirror back. Over and over and over again. You are not this. You are this. You are not powerless. You are, in Christ, you have everything that you need. That's what we do. So when we see a brother or sister given over to lying or given over to anger, we are called by God with what Paul is saying to lovingly, gently remind them of who they are and remind them of the truth of Jesus. That means each of us have to learn how to do this for one another. Because we need it more than once a week. (laughs) You can't just rely on me to give it to you once a week. I don't know about you, but I need it more than that. I need people in my life to be able to do this, to be asking me the question whether or not I'm living according to my new identity in Christ. So we have to be in communities where this is happening. Now, I just want to mention this at the end. Who is this available to? Um, If you remember, the the letter of Ephesians is written to Christians, right? It's written to churches. Um, And yet, did you notice what kind of people Paul is talking to? You notice the people that he includes in his list of things that they need to start to transform their mind around? Who's who's his audience? Liars, gossips, people with anger management issues, kleptomaniacs, brawlers, malicious people. (laughs) Like, Paul assumes that all these people are in the church. And he says to this group of failures and miscreants, don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In chapter 5, he starts out by saying that they're God's beloved children. So oftentimes, the reason that we don't invest ourselves in a community, the reason that we're not honest with the deep things in our hearts and what we're struggling with, the reason that we don't see change and we, don't, we aren't honest with where we're starting from and have people help us in the process of transformation is because we think that somehow we are outside of God's grace. I just want you to be reminded that this group of people with all of their manifold issues are sealed for the day of redemption. They're perfect in God's sight. They are adopted There is nothing that they can't be honest about because there is nothing that they could share in this community that will reject them from God's presence. He has done the work to seal them for that day.
Isn't that good news? I mean, hopefully that empowers you to to be able to say, there's nothing in my heart that I can't also be honest with. There's nothing I can't share with my community. If I'm struggling with an issue, an area of unbelief in my heart, even just because I give words to it does not change my identity in Christ. It is secure forever. We need to believe that, family. So I think the more that we believe it, the more we'll live out of it, right? Because our beliefs lead to action. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given us a new way to live, a new identity in you, a new set of truths that we can live our lives by. So often we, we don't access what has already been given to us at such a high cost. Father, it grieves you. I just want to recognize that it grieves you when we don't live our lives according to the new self. You are grieved as a dad because you know that for us to live according to our old self is poison to our hearts. It's it's poison to those around us. It's, it's doing deep damage to us and we don't even know it. It's grieving you and it's harming us and it's destroying others. Father, we need you to lead us out. Help us. Give us minds that can understand, eyes that can see the truth of who you are. I pray, God, as, that as we do that in community, that we would see deep transformation and that people would come to know who you are more and more. We love you. Amen.